0: I'm a 73-year-old disabled woman who had polio in 1949, and I came into this work because I'm a 73-year-old post-polio who had polio in 1949, and uh, discrimination was something that existed then, and I learned from my mother and my father that advocacy was something that I had to learn to do in order to be able to help create a society that I wanted to live in and Along the way, I really recognized that I love working with other people and that I really loved being with other disabled people who were experiencing similar types of discrimination and had a vision of how we wanted to change the world.
1: Welcome to Off-Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free. Powered by the Century Foundation, I am Rebecca Vallis. Every week, I talk with visionary leaders working to disrupt the off-kilter imbalance of power in the U.S. to build a society where everyone can thrive and experience the shared abundance we all deserve. And this week, Off-Kilter is taking a break from our ongoing series about self-care as political warfare to honor the life and legacy of Judy Human. An iconic civil rights leader and the godmother of the disability rights movement, Judy passed away on March 4th, 2023 at age 75. It was especially important to me and many others at the Century Foundation to do a tribute to Judy for this week's episode of the podcast because she was a mentor, a friend, and an inspiration to so many of us personally, as is true for nearly everyone involved with the movement for disability rights and justice. Those of us engaged in disability rights advocacy and activism today simply wouldn't be doing this work if not for the trail Judy blazed. And so much of the work leaders across the community have done over the years to advance disability rights and justice doesn't just stand on the shoulders of Judy's pioneering work over the decades. In many cases, she directly facilitated it. Meanwhile, the Century Foundation's Disability Economic Justice Collaborative, which brings together dozens of advocacy organizations to work in tandem to bring a lens across all policymaking in the U.S. is the direct outgrowth of not just Judy's work but her teachings. As Judy often put it, speaking of advances like Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, which afforded the first civil rights protections to people with disabilities in the U.S. in the latter part of the 20th century, none of these things can be done by any one group. There was a lot that was magical about Judy Human, Her courage. Her perseverance, her refusal to take no for an answer in the face of a society that simply wasn't built for disabled people. But one theme rang like a through line throughout the celebration of Judy's life held earlier this week, and that's that Judy knew the power of connection and collaboration was her default this was a teaching she modeled and passed on to many of us as a key principle when it comes to how to be an effective advocate. So it is with a heavy heart balanced out with immeasurable gratitude and love that we dedicate this week's episode of Off Kilter to celebrating the life of Judy Human. And it feels like the right place to start is to let Judy speak for herself. So first, we'll turn to an excerpt of the conversation I had with Judy the last time she was a guest on this podcast in September of last year. She talks about what it was like for her and other disabled children growing up in the U.S. before there were disability civil rights protections. And she tells the story of what came to be known as the 504 sit-ins, the longest takeover of a federal building in American history, which led to the enactment of Section 504 of the rehabilitation. Act, and eventually the Americans with Disabilities Act itself. This was part of a conversation that also featured Rebecca Coakley and Mia Ives-Rubley, who now leads CAP's Disability Justice Initiative, both of whom you'll hear referenced in the recording.
0: Let's take a listen. For children that acquire their disabilities, the, the ability for parents to see their children who have one or more types of disabilities as being deserving of obtaining the same opportunities as their non-disabled children or non-disabled neighbors or family, or whatever, is really very critical because like any family, uh, the people that are helping raise the children really set an example. And so that's what I was saying earlier. Um, my parents really did not allow no to be something that they would just accept. But in the time that I was growing up, uh, because there weren't any laws and, you know, there was an organization called the March of Dimes. But as my mother learned uh, pretty early on, when I was like in the seventh or eighth grade, uh, the March of Dimes raised money uh, for research, but did not get involved politically. And what that basically meant was when I was denied the right to go to school because the principal said I was a fire hazard. And I had a teacher who was sent by the Board of Ed of New York City for only two and a half hours a week for basically first, second, third and a half of the fourth grade. And then I went to these special classes where at that point children stayed till they were 21, although we were in a regular school building and kids left in the sixth grade if they didn't have a disability. My mother and other mothers learned that if you had a child with a disability who couldn't get up and down steps or walk up and down steps, in the high school that there were no high schools that were accessible. And so uh, kids were going back to home instruction. So my mom and other mothers organized with the Board of Data and were able to get some of the schools made accessible. So that meant I was the first student in my HC 21 class to actually go to a high school. All of those things I think were very important. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity uh, both when I was going to segregated classes where I wasn't learning very much, but I was meeting kids who had different types of disabilities. And we were very much seeing that our expectations and our family's expectations by and large were not, not at all in line with what the Board of Ed or the employer or anyone else was really thinking about for us. So that really uh, started me and others at a young age beginning to think about what were the barriers? And for those of you who've watched Crip Camp, I think you know, you'll know you see this group of disabled young people who um, were speaking up and out about what we wanted in our lives. And I think that's really what happened. We began to learn from the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement, the aging movement, the great Panthers movement about how other people were organizing. And I think one of the the problems that we face, and in many ways still face today, although social media I think is being very helpful in this regard, is the ability to come together, to work together, to organize together. And I think that's something that we've worked on um, reasonably successfully over the last number of decades. So all those types of activities um, that really were putting us on a path of wanting to be able to be a part of the general society. And you know, we could talk about this stuff for days, but I think basically for the audience to understand, there was a real opportunity in the 1970s and 80s um, and 1990 where there were many things that were coming into alignment. Uh, the disability community, both for those of us with disabilities, we're creating our own organizations But there were other organizations like United Cerebral Palsy and um, the ARC, which works with people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, and various veterans organizations that were beginning to come together and really working on creating many major pieces of legislation. The Individuals with Disabilities Education being one of the major ones that came about in December of 1975, and a section section five of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 as amended, which had amongst other provisions, section 504, which made it illegal to discriminate against someone with a disability if in fact they were receiving money from the federal government. When the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, disability was not a part of that legislation. So it took really until 1990 between 504 and other provisions, and the Americans with Disabilities Act for disabled people to have somewhat of an equivalent protection in legislation. But along that 20 year uh, trail, uh, we did see a maturing of the disability community of the recognition that we as disabled people needed to be spokespersons. We needed to learn the legislative process, which I think we've been doing a much better job on than we were. In like the late 60s and early 70s. Now there are you know many people in the disability community who are very knowledgeable, very sophisticated about how to work the legislative systems at the federal and state and local level. I mean, I would say that, you know, right now, the big issues that we're needing to work on um, are implementation of existing laws, and we will get into discussing some of the other issues like home and community-based services. And Judy, staying with you for just a moment because I feel like
1: it's it's worth continuing the history lesson here just a little bit before we get into closer to present day. You were a major driving force, as were were several others that you're you're referencing who went to the um, legendary summer camp called called Camp Jeanette, which is featured in in Crip camp, the documentary that you and I have both referenced. Um, you all were a major driving force behind the ultimate passage of key civil rights laws and regulations uh, for people with disabilities. But but these were much harder fought victories than I think a lot of folks may be aware who don't know that history. Talk a little bit about how you all came to kickstart what became the disability rights movement. If I understand correctly, it actually started in earnest with the launch of an organization that you you led called DIA, Disabled in Action, and and a lawsuit against a horrifically inhuman humane institution for disabled kids called Willowbrook?
0: So the Willowbrook lawsuit was not one that Disabled in Action uh, was involved with. Basically, there were a number of pieces of litigation that had started in the 60s and 70s. And Willowbrook really got broken open by Geraldo Rivera when he did an expose because Bill Bronston and another doctor named Michael, somebody I can't remember his last name, Gave Rivera the keys to one of the wards in Willowbrook, and he came in unannounced. Um, there were other pieces of, there were other lawsuits, the Penthurst lawsuit, a number of others that other um, uh, lawyers had brought in the 1960s and continued to bring even through today on these institutions. Disabled in Action um, was uh, one of the major organizations in New York City that. Uh, organized the demonstrations when uh, President Nixon vetoed the Rehabilitation Act in 1972. And uh, we, I think it was kind of a precursor to what was going to happen later on in the Bay Area in California with the takeover of federal building. I think what's really important to understand is there were many moving parts. And the um, importance of the disability community beginning to organize and create our own voice was very important as we were moving forward with these pieces of legislation and section 504 and the regulations i think people understand you have a law and then you get regulations which are put forward to help people uh, learn about what the law requires and what the law doesn't require so really when section 504 finally was signed into law as a part of the rehab act in 1973 it was a 42-word piece of legislation that had no definition of what was a disability, what were you going to do with all this inaccessibility? And so there were a number of years where the Department of Justice, I'm sorry, at that point it was the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, uh, what really began to work across the country to understand more of what was discrimination and what were the kinds of remedies that could in fact be put forward. For example, there wasn't going to be a way that you were going to say, like within one year, every public school and every hospital and every university that got money from the federal government was going to have to be accessible. So if you look at the regulations, you'll see that um, they say things like anything new that's going to be built has to be accessible. Anything that's being modified is going to have to be accessible. But Then they also look at the totality of programs to look at what would have to happen in a school district for example, to make sure that disabled kids would not have to go to segregated settings in order to be able to to receive an education. And as we were learning, there were more groups being created. When I went out to Berkeley, it was both to go to graduate school and to get involved with an organization called the Center for Independent Living. Today, there are more than 500 centers across the United States, and in 1975, it was a short-lived organization called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. Unfortunately, it only lived from 75 to 82, but, and I mentioned this in particular uh, because of what you've asked, uh, Becca, and that is that this organization, it was a cross-disability organization that for the first time was a national group. Um, their executive director was deathly president of the board um, was a blind woman. And people with other forms of disabilities were on the board. And um, this organization being in DC was really the leading group that when the 504 regulations were not signed by the Ford administration, and then when the Carter administration was dragging their feet, it was this organization that did a call around the country for the members of ACCD to have demonstrations in the regional offices of the federal government. Now, the Bay Area was the most well organized. And, you know, Becca was really, uh, Coakley was referencing the Bay Area earlier. And again, not for today, but there were many reasons why the Bay Area was really a pivotal point because there were a number of centers for independent living already in 1977. And there had been a great deal of work between the centers and labor unions and the women's community and others, which really enabled us to have this demonstration, which lasted for like 26, 27 days, and is the longest takeover of federal building in the United States history and resulted in the 504 regulations being signed in the form that we felt were appropriate. And I think those activities really helped very much um, begin to empower disabled people to recognize that we could do things that we felt in the past we couldn't. Now, would those demonstrations have been as successful in other cities, I don't know, but we did have the right environment overall in the Bay area. So the Black Panthers helped with food, Um, major organizations were supportive and the mayor himself uh, was very supportive. Mayor of San Francisco, Moscone, who was very supportive. So it was kind of the right time. And I think really, you know, has been a critical part of the work that's gone on around the country. But the ADA and 504, none of these things could have been done by any one group. And I think that's what's really important. You know, it's a, there are a lot of cogs and they have to be rotating at the same time and sync. And that's why I think we're moving to where we are today which is in a much better direction.
1: You can find the full conversation with Judy, Rebecca Coakley, Mia Ives Rubley, and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley in our show notes for this episode or by scrolling back in our episode archive. The title of that episode is The Ongoing Fight for Disability Economic Justice, 32 Years After the ADA. Many people discovered Judy Human thanks to the 2020 film Crip Camp, which is well worth the watch if you still haven't seen it. But Judy has long been a legend to disabled people around the globe and a mentor to nearly everyone in the movement for disability rights and justice. As was said in the celebration of her life earlier this week, while Judy may not have had any children of her own, at the same time, she had hundreds of children and all of us who are part of the Century Foundation's Disability Economic Justice Team and the Disability Economic Collaborative are proud to be Judy's children. So as we continue this tribute to the life and legacy of Judy Human, after the service on Wednesday of this week, I sat down with several members of the Century Foundation's Disability Economic Justice Team to share our favorite memories of Judy, what we learned from her, how she inspired our work and careers, and to reflect on how the team and the Collaborative literally wouldn't exist without the trail she blazed for all of us. Let's take a listen. Kings, Emily, Kim, it is super, super fun to get to sit down with all of you and, um, and honor Judy's legacy. And I I wish I were spending time with all of you under better circumstances, but I have to say, it's been really meaningful getting to spend this day with you and in community with so many folks across the disability community. Um, so for context, we just came from the service, um, at, uh, at the, the synagogue, um, with, I don't even know how many people were there. It was like overflow room after overflow room. The world came to celebrate Judy's life um, as as um, was what needed to happen. Um, uh, but we all we all felt like the right thing to do was to um, to take some time ourselves um, to really share some stories about um, about Judy to um, to share some personal memories. Um, uh, given that she really has been and, and was a mentor to um, to each of us in in different ways. Um, I think. It's fair to say none of us would be doing this work today and none of us would know each other and none of us would be in the roles that we're in um, if not for Judy Human. So um, I, I know she's with us in spirit for this conversation um, and uh, she's probably
2: laughing at us and probably already has some kind of a criticism to offer about something I've said. <laughs> She's shaking a finger somewhere up there. Um, but I'm going to kick this conversation off by
1: asking each of you to um, introduce yourselves so that folks can hear your voices. And then um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into this conversation. So um, Kings, you are the newest um, of the bunch to come on Off-Kilter. You've been, you're no stranger to the show because these days you're one of the producers of Off-Kilter behind the scenes, but I'm really excited to have you on the airwaves. Um, uh, so share a little bit about who you are and how you come to this work.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Kings Floyd. My pronouns are she, her. I have the absolute pleasure of working with everyone around the table at the Century Foundation as part of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. Um, And I met Judy when I first moved to D.C. in 2016, but I had heard... Many, many wonderful things about her from 14 years on uh, and even before without just recognizing that she was the force behind the power.
1: I love that, and and so much of this conversation, I think, is is going to bring in how we how we knew her and um, our various memories of her. So uh, let's add that into the introductions here: how you first met Judy, or how you first remember meeting Judy. Um, Emily, you were just on Off Kilter a few weeks ago. It's lovely to have you back um, uh, again. I wish the circumstances were were better, but I know Judy meant a lot to you as well. So um, remind Off Kilter's listeners a little bit about who you are, and maybe um, if you want to invoke the first time you remember
4: meeting Judy. Yeah, I am really happy to be back in spite of the circumstances. I think that this is a good opportunity to be celebratory. And as for who I am, quick reminder, I am the editor of the Voices of Disability Economic Justice Project. And so, yes, I was on just a Few weeks ago to talk about that project and the way that we shared and amplified stories, and will continue to do so. And I think that that's probably the perfect segue to you know, how I knew of Judy first was by reading her story and learning about her because I was trying to research and understand more about the disability community and more about my own identity. And so I think I felt like I knew Judy before I actually knew Judy. But one of my very distinct uh, earlier memories was that she reached out to me to get lunch in New York City. And so we met up to just talk and chat and we were in Bryant Park and we came across a hot dog stand and she was so excited and I hate hot dogs but she said I have to get a New York Frankfurter I just I have to get one and so the first picture that I have with just Judy she has the New York Frankfurter sitting proudly on her lap In the photo, and she just is so happy about it. (laughs) And I don't know if she was happier to eat the hot dog or to see me, but I'd like to think that uh, that was... A positive moment then that I was associated
2: with hot dogs in her mind, and it she certainly loved can't have hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I was um, uh, there were many stories about Judy that were shared that I had heard. There were many that I had not heard as part of the service. She had family and friends, and a lot of folks sharing stories. And uh, the Frankfurters came up as actually one of her favorite things in the world, right? The 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 Frankfurter with uh, sauerkraut and mustard and, and all of that. So it was important enough to her to make it into the into the eulogies. So I'd, I'd say it was. It was probably helpful that that was involved in your first meeting um and Kim you've been on the show before as well um mm-hmm. and
1: um and and Judy has um been important to you as well and we're all I should say um you know members of the ada generation mm-hmm. literally none of us would be in the roles that we're in if not for Judy do you want to talk a little bit about how you come to this work and how you first met Judy
5: yeah and yes hello again everyone glad to be glad to be back so again as a, as a reminder as others did um, um, Kim Noxted, and I have the pleasure of working with everyone around the table as well and, and lead our disability economic justice team and director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative, um, which we got to see so many friends from the collaborative and friends from the community today, despite the sad circumstances. But in true Judy fashion, I feel like that's what she would have wanted is the coming together of everyone. Um, and even though it's not Judy's doing specifically Getting to take over the restaurant today for lunch, I feel like is exactly what Judy would have wanted, um, and the toasts that were occurring. Um. So just to say for yeah. context, we, we we walked out of the service <laughs> and it was like,
1: okay, well, what, what we got? it Everyone's starving. It's mm-hmm. we got a lunch, and we found um a, a nearby restaurant that was fully accessible because mm-hmm. we've got a group that um some people are are um
2: were walking in, some people are rolling in, and we needed it to be a fully accessible restaurant. And yep. we found this Thai restaurant, delicious
5: by the
1: way.
2: Accidentally turned out to be one of Judy's restaurants that she used to go to because, of course, it's right around the corner from her synagogue. Mm-hmm. We only found that out after we got in there. The entire place was all people who'd been at the service, and so mm-hmm. it was like an. Ex- Attention of the service and really Judy was. was there in spirit and we all became friends with literally all the other tables which is exactly how Judy would have wanted it to Push be. Push some tables together. Yeah, creating community even in in her um mm-hmm. in her passing um, but keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a lovely moment. I think that may have been my favorite part of the day even. Um, yeah, so
5: I, Judy, you know, it was instrumental to me, not more in the uh, getting to know her through my professional capacity versus personal, which I think so many folks share today. Um, I remember her most as typically scolding me. Um, even the first time I met her for not texting her enough. And I'm like, I'm just meeting you. You're Judy human. You're this, you know mother of the, the entire disability rights movement. And you're sitting here scolding me for not texting you when I didn't even have your number the first time, which is very classic. <laughs> um, and then that continued throughout the entire time I've known her. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, um, that also just is, is Judy. And so, you know, I know we'll share more about how she's impacted our work, but I feel like that also is just exactly who she is. Even if you are just starting to build a relationship with your, with her, She's telling you, well, why didn't you know me sooner?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's it's well put. And um, I, just to say, right? I mean, this is gonna be this is gonna be a conversation that's gonna have um, probably just as much laughter as it has sadness in it, mm-hmm. because um, Judy um, wanted and was very specific in her request for how she wanted um, her um, her service to go and and wanted her um, her passing to be acknowledged. She wanted it to be a celebration of life, and mm-hmm. so I think we're gonna take that seriously and take that forward into this conversation. Um, and Judy brought a lot of laughter to a lot of people. The years, so it's hard not to um, to bring that in as we as we each remember her. So, um, Kings, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back in and, and bring this next question to you, which is um, to talk a little bit about what Judy's um, leadership and, um, and and her role as really the mother of the disability rights movement. Um, what that what that has meant for you in in your life. One of the um, quotes that um, there were many that were incredibly powerful at this at the service shared by family, friends, others, the rabbis at the synagogue, it was just, it was powerful speaker after powerful speaker. But one of the moments that really resonated deeply for me was um, one of her family members noted that her lived experience made it impossible for people to think disability was a tragedy. Talk a little bit about what Judy's uh, pioneering of the the disability rights movement as it's evolved um, uh, meant for you growing up.
3: Sure. Um, So I will be very upfront. I did not have disabled female role models in my life up until I was about 14. Um, And I met a a few people, uh, some of whom I'm in touch with now, but many of whom were just in so drastically different places in their lives that um, mentorship and engagement was uh, important, but I wouldn't say was the priority for all of the work that was going forward. and, you know, as, as we saw at the Thai restaurant today, you know, Judy was part of the Disability Mentoring Coalition and, you know, just strongly believed in, in mentorship. Um, so I think I had met her twice or three times. And she said, great, why aren't you coming to this event? And it was like an AUCD conference or it was, it was something. And I was like, well, Judy, like, it's X amount of money. Like, I don't have a ticket. And she was like, oh. And she, you know, got on her phone, sent a couple of text messages, and she's like, you need to be there at 6. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, that's fine. Yep, just going to redo my schedule a little bit. Um, and the idea that a fiery disabled woman that not only didn't take no for an answer, but didn't ask the question to get no to begin with, was incredibly influential because it suggested that I didn't have to ask permission for things that I wanted to be or identities that I wanted to embody in my life. Uh, and I had never had a disabled female disabled role model that was so confident in who they were, and so unapologetic with the help that they needed, it really allowed me to advocate personally for what I needed in my day-to-day life from a personal care perspective, which has been invaluable to me throughout my life.
1: I love that story, mm-hmm. and um, there, there, Emily, it's a great segue into bringing you back in. Um, I, I feel like a lot of what we heard this morning at the service, and a lot of what we all know in our in our bones, is Judy is someone who um, she created community with everything that she did. She didn't ever seek to do anything by herself. She was always bringing other folks along,
2: even if you thought you barely knew her. You know, she was calling you up and saying, "Why don't you call me more?" Right, and and that certainly was my experience right after I. I, you know, had thought I thought we just met, but apparently we were we were we were going to be friends. And that was what she had decided. Um, talk a little bit about what Judy's
1: leadership in this movement um, meant to you and um, and and um, anything you want to pull on from what Kings just shared.
4: I think it's very interesting to consider the fact that I did grow up with someone who I considered a disabled role model, my mom. And my mom is younger than Judy, but they you know still grew up around the same time. And yet my mom was not really connected with the burgeoning disability rights movement at the time. And so that wasn't something that she was able to really pass on to me. And she always says that she taught me how to advocate, but I really taught her about disability pride. And that pride came from learning about people like Judy and understanding that I was part of a broader community and I wasn't just someone out on the sidelines, who had no history, who had no identity. And also, I am a disabled Jewish New York female, right? And Judy is a disabled Jewish New Yorker. And so, I think that I saw myself in her. And originally, I wanted to be a teacher, too. And I ran into accessibility issues also. And so, I think that really just resonated with me when I realized that there was somebody who came before me who was paving that pathway for me, and I wasn't alone, and I was somebody who had a culture behind me. I don't think I really had that concept when I was growing up, but as I started learning about the disability community, I realized, wow, I'm part of something that is so much bigger than myself, And that's incredible to me. And Judy wasn't the type of person who ever treated you like you didn't belong within the community. There was no hierarchy in the way that she treated anyone. Everybody was welcome in the way that she engaged and you know, when I first started talking to her, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm talking to disability royalty, but she didn't make you feel that way. And she really cared about people. I mean, a few summers ago, I had a freak accident and I broke my leg and I have a a voicemail that I saved from her. And all it says is, Girl, oh my God, call me. You know, and it was like two days after I was in the hospital. And when I didn't call her back because I was in the hospital, then she got my mom's number and started calling my mother. (laughs) And that was Judy. She just cared about you. And it didn't matter how busy she was. She wanted to know how you were doing. And I think that was when I realized you don't need to look at someone like Judy as royalty. She's human. Like all of us. In so many,
1: um, meanings of the word. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I love that story. And,
2: and, um, I think all of us and everyone who, who knew her has some version and many versions of the story of getting phone calls from her at weird hours, whether that was 11 PM or 4 AM or something in between. And, and just she'd go straight into what she wanted to talk to you about. And, um, you know, but we, we learned in the service this morning, apparently that started early in life for her. Her brother was sharing that she apparently got in trouble all the time for going way over on their phone bills. <laughs> Growing up as kids, which I have to say does not surprise me, but, um, it was because she, she, she wanted, she wanted
1: to be in people's lives and she wanted to, um, she wanted to be in connection all the time. Um, Kim, I want to bring you in, um, next and, um, I'm going to invoke some words from a dear friend and colleague, uh, of all of ours. And that's mm-hmm. Rebecca Coakley, who is mm-hmm. also very much here in spirit in this conversation. And also her voice is heard elsewhere in this episode. Mm-hmm. So Coakley, you're with us today and it was great being with her um, at the service earlier. Um, Rebecca Coakley wrote an op-ed memorializing um, Judy's legacy um, in uh, in CNN, and um, there's a particular line I want to share from that op-ed that um, I I think is a great segue into bringing you back in, Kim, and and that's um, that, quote, her work, Judy's work, started outside the system. But then she decided to be an infiltrator. She understood the importance of changing structures from the inside and from the outside. And Kim, that describes beautifully the very model of change that Mm -hmm. the team, the Disability Economic Justice Team at the Century Foundation Mm -hmm. um, holds dear. It's also the theory of change of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative, but it also really describes your own work experience Mm -hmm. as a a leader within the disability rights and, and justice movement yourself. And you've spent a lot of your time inside government, just mm-hmm. like you've spent time outside. Talk a little bit about what Judy's model um, has brought for you in terms of inspiring your own leadership in this work.
5: Yeah, that that quote really resonated with me when I read it. And I thought um, Coakley did such a nice job of summarizing that. That piece as well, I think is one of the best written pieces about sort of the tribute to, to Judy. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, throughout the last few days, I really reflected on sort of my career and like what Judy has meant to me. And even the position I held in the White House, the director of disability policy for the Domestic Policy Council, like that idea of that position would not have existed had it not have been for a Judy Human. I mean, and it the, didn't I, exist before you. Right, right. But I mean I like that position they they brought me in to be the first person. But the idea of that position, even acknowledging that disability, one is a policy area, but even say like it's like even saying the words that it's we should have a person to direct disability policy across all domestic policy is so meaningful and it would just wouldn't have existed without people like Judy. And so I think that is like a really big testament to sort of her work and her movement um, over the years. And I, th- I was thinking even further back to being a teacher. And, you know, my students had an IEP, they had 504 plans, none of that, they wouldn't even have been allowed in schools like Judy, right. And so I think back to literally every step of the way, that I've had, not only in my professional capacity, but then in my personal capacity as well, you know, living, we all live with our own, you know, um, chronic illnesses, disabilities, we like having to navigate ourselves, but from just purely a professional standpoint, Judy has like paved the way for everything I've done. And so I think the idea of how she has, she knew she had to push the system and she did it in a way that, often, you know, was, uh, quite vocal. Um, and, <laughs> uh, she didn't resist that is for sure. But then she also knew that at some point she had to go inside the system and make a change and those relationships mattered. And then when she left the system, she knew who to call to keep pushing. <laughs> and as again, um, you know, the time of day when she would call would be all hours. Um, and she would just kind of keep, keep calling and keep pushing, And so she really knew how to navigate all sides of everything to just get the change that was needed. And it's like she was playing, you know, multi-layer chess while we were all still playing checkers. Yeah, and, I, I love that and, yeah. and the understanding
1: that she brought and that she taught to so many of us and mm-hmm. so many of the current leaders of the of the movement whom she's really passing the torch to now mm-hmm. um, as she, as Alice Wong put it, becomes a disabled ancestor. Yeah. Um, it, it was that, that inside outside game mm-hmm. that she so perfected and that um, was, was necessary to get to the point where you even had people who were part of an inside game right. Right, at all who, who cared about these issues. Emily, I yeah. wanted to get in as well.
4: Yes, because what Kim said really resonated with me. I know that there are many activists that I have encountered who feel that to be inside the system is to be a part of the oppression. Mm-hmm. And I really honor and understand that perspective. But as somebody who has also found myself inside many of these systems, mm-hmm. I have come to realize that Judy really models what it's like to balance that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as someone who constantly grapples with being a part of the systems that do oppress us, right. I really worry that maybe sometimes it can cause more harm than good. But then I realize, if we don't have people who are willing to be those infiltrators in the first place, then we're not going to change the systems because we're not working within the systems. And so that to me is a huge part of Judy's legacy that I think we need to acknowledge. She showed us how to strike that balance. Mm-hmm. I, I love that,
1: and I have to say, just the word "infiltration." It's like it's such a Judy word, mm-hmm. right? And it's a word that I use regularly in describing um, my own understanding of of how to bring disability into work that often leaves the community behind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I um, to to me um, the the um, the story that I feel like wants to come into this moment is um, the origin of the Disability Justice Initiative at the mm-hmm. Center for American Progress. This was 20, 2016. And Rebecca Coakley and I are, you know, scheming. I don't know, I think we were at some bar in like DuPont having like glasses
2: of you know <laughs> cruddy liquor, being like, what do we do? <laughs> Everything's like, you know, not, not where it should be, right? <laughs> I'm trying to like uh, save Troy from doing any bleeps here. Um, and um, and what we what we started to to say
1: was like, well, you know, what would what would Judy advise us to do? Like how would how do we get there? Because the what we were running up against was we had all these organizations. Um mm-hmm. Uh, And I don't want to single out the Center for American Progress. They weren't weren't the only one. We had all these organizations saying, yeah, but we don't do disability. Mm -hmm. And we had all these leaders in philanthropy saying, we don't fund disability. And we were going, how do we break through? And we realized what we needed was infiltration. Mm -hmm. What we needed was instead of having folks banging on the door saying, let me in and bring me to the table, it was, well, how do we infiltrate these powerful institutions? And so Judy ended up actually becoming the reason we were able to launch the first ever disability project at a U.S. think tank, which is what the Disability. Justice Initiative was, which is wild that in 2018, 2017, when it launched, it was the first, It, it should not have been possible to have taken that long. But Judy was the one who made it possible because she was then at the Ford Foundation, she believed in infiltration and that's what she said as we were talking with her. She got it immediately in that first phone call. She said, oh, this is infiltration, mm-hmm. right? Like I
2: know what we're doing here. Yes, I will help you do
1: this, right? Mm-hmm. When nobody else, mm-hmm. nobody else would say this is something to do. So that word infiltration really rings in in my head to this day as a core teaching of Judy's that I have sought to carry forward um, and which really describes
2: everything that we're doing here and everything we do with. the collaborative. Maybe that's our next tattoo, disabled infiltrators. <laughs> I really like that idea i like Mm -hmm. yeah uh before we started taping for context we were starting to talk about like you know how do you honor judy and is it some kind of a tattoo that's a little feisty so we'll (laughs) we'll see if that's if that's where that goes Um, so i i want to turn
1: next to just sharing some of our favorite memories of um of of working with judy of knowing judy of learning from judy you know maybe favorite stories i know you guys have no shortage of these um one of the stories that i really really enjoyed um Hearing in the service this morning that I did not know um, before was that she had. um, uh, So she was on a plane, and folks were being jerks and trying to get her off the plane. This was in the in like it was not that long ago, relatively speaking in American history, but it was um, long ago enough that um, she, as somebody who was um, in a chair and didn't have a personal care attendant with her, was trying. They were trying to remove her from the plane, Mm -hmm. and she wouldn't go. Um, And uh, and then the folks on the plane, as the story went, um, started putting like liquor bottles in front of her to make. It seemed like she'd been drinking to make it easier to kick her off the plane and then they she said, Well, you're gonna to have to arrest me, and then law enforcement came in to, to remove her, but she she but the end of the story, which is just so classic Judy, is she um they asked her for ID and so she, and she was of, arrested. She right, she was. She was arrested, she was removed from the plane, and then they asked her for ID so they could know who she was, and she handed them her ID showing that she had Senate clearance
5: mm-hmm. because Senate floor of, clearance. Senate floor clearance which is a different level, which yep. is
2: and you would know you've worked mm-hmm. in the Senate. it this and so they all started backpedaling and going oh just kidding we didn't know who it was we were mm-hmm. messing with right so it's like a it's a classic judy story but i know you guys have no shortage of, of judy stories um kings do you want to do you emily he looks like you want to go next
4: yeah For me, it's definitely a personal one and not a professional one, but it's a fun one. So Judy was, I think to a lot of people, a very Jewish grandmotherly type, uh, a bubby, we would call her. Oh, yes. (laughs) And so she knew that I had been dating someone. And every time we got on the phone, every time we got on some kind of video chat, Her first question was, are you engaged yet? Every time. I think she asked me more than my own grandmother's asked me, to be quite (laughs) honest with you. And um, I guess now it gets a little bit sad. I really wanted to tell her that I had started seeing somebody new and no, I'm not engaged, but he's a nice Jewish boy. I just wanted to tell her that, and uh, time goes by as it does, and so I didn't get the chance to tell her. But uh, I have a feeling that she's probably up somewhere, cracking up, because she knows now that she's in a lot of people's heads about, Oh, are you seeing someone? Are Mm -hmm. you getting married? Give me the gossip. And I think that was what I appreciated so much about her, was it didn't feel like a professional relationship, even though that's how it started. She really wanted to know what's going on in your life Mm -hmm. in honestly a very nosy way. (laughs) But I think that was what made her so lovable and charming was she meant absolutely well when she wanted to ask you about your life. She did it because she was personally invested and, it always made me smile. So, no, Judy, I'm not engaged yet, but but I am dating someone. Just so
2: you know, in case you're listening, and he's a nice Jewish, boy. a nice Jewish boy. She'd be, she'd be felling. When you look up the um, the word Yenta in the in the Yiddish dictionary, you just see a picture of Judy. Yeah, <laughs> just her
3: face right there. It's
2: just and that's all they <laughs> need. Oh my god, I love it, Perfect. Kings. What um, what Judy stories do you want to tell?
3: Um, I have I have two that are my favorite. One is a professional, and one is a. personal. Uh, But actually, they're both personal, I guess. Um, (laughs) So I'll I'll talk about first, the first time that I worked with Judy, Um, I was finishing my fellowship at the National Council on Independent Living. And I was doing a project on disability pride. And disability pride is something that I struggled with a lot. As I've said, I didn't have a lot of disabled role models growing up. And so modeling behavior of strong, competent, feisty, independent, and however you interpret that word didn't exist for me. And I wanted to create this guide to talk with young people with disabilities about how to be proud about their identity. Not actually saying that it was something that I was also working on for myself um and so uh kelly buckland and tim you know suggested i uh you know reach out to judy and judy met me for coffee and i was like so judy like what what would be advice to someone you what would be advice you would give to someone that was looking to learn and foster disability pride and she goes well, what do you think would be life lessons to learn to foster disability <laughs> pride? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. And so we, you know, I, you know, I, I guessed, I guess a little bit here, I guess a little bit there. And uh, I went on to interview numerous people about what disability pride meant to them. Fast forward about five years and we are at politics and prose and Judy is doing her book signing for being human. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I am raising my hand. The microphone gets passed to me and it's a question and answer portion. And I say, Judy, what advice would you give to people in the movement that are looking to mentor other young people to bring them in and help them feel a sense of empowerment in their community, she goes. Well, what would you do to make them feel a sense of empowerment in their community? I'm like Judy. This is not my book signing. This is your book signing. <laughs> oh, but she knew
2: what she was doing, and she, and she knew, yeah. yeah.
3: And she always wanted the like. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. My other like super short one is I am a very crafty person. I think many people in this room know. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I love art supplies of any kind, and I loved pottery painting. I went pottery painting once. I was leaving the studio, and I almost literally ran into Judy. And I was like, oh, Judy, hi, how's it going? I was like, oh, good, how are you? And I'm like, good, like, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, I I live here. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, yeah, my apartment is the second floor, third floor up. And so... I was, she was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm I'm painting pottery. She's like, oh, when are we doing that? And I was like, I, whenever you want to, Judy. A year goes by. We finally get pottery on the books. And it is a table of 12 people. Like, it was me and Judy, and then two of our friends, and then her friend, and then their daughters. And, you know, it turned into a party. And... Judy is kind of making fun of herself a little bit in in a joking way uh, because we're all sitting there painting our pieces and mine does not look, you know, anything better than a fourth grader. But Judy thinks hers looks even worse. And I'm like, Judy, you are good at so many different things. Can you just give other people a small win to be good at something because you have really that whole area covered. (laughs) And she said, well, no, I'm not good at calling people within certain hours. And the whole table just looked around and cracked up. And I remember being like, all right, well, Judy not only knows her strengths, but her weaknesses (gasps) and or her lovable characteristics that we, um, Uh, engage with and endure because we love her Um, but it just it it resonated with me that she was both um, continuously questioning and continuously humble Mm -hmm. in both of those all of the experiences of when I uh, when I when she was here that's
2: mm-hmm. an amazing story. Both mm-hmm. of those stories are amazing, but just the fact that she had that level of self awareness about mm-hmm. the phone behavior, and that that became such a part of what people like so know cruel. about her, right? And like the, I, I feel like that is that is the um, that was the laugh line in so many of the oh eulogies gosh, this so morning. Many. Was the was it was all about the phone? It came back to the, the phone calls. Um, uh, so um, one of the one of the um, uh, things that was said this morning, that
1: was another quote that really stuck with me was that she made a friend on every corner and she instilled a responsibility to every person she had a conversation with. And I feel like that's coming through with all of the stories that everyone's sharing. It, it, she didn't just have conversations with people. She she gave you marching mm-hmm. orders. She mm-hmm. gave you a charge. Um, and so I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't end this conversation um, by looking forward um, and by talking about what it looks like for us to carry forward her, her legacy um, and, and not just to, to think about what what she was able to do and, and what work has already happened up until this point um, uh, uh, her family observed this morning during the service that she passed away on March the fourth, um, and so one of her nieces noted um, in her eulogy that she's asking even in her passing, Judy is she's asking us even in her passing to march forth,
2: <laughs> right, mm-hmm. um, and to carry her work forward. And 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 then the, the um, her niece put uh, a little edit on that and said, or maybe as Judy would have put it, those who can march march, those who can roll roll, right. And um, uh, mm-hmm.
1: what? So I'd love to close by by um, asking each of you to share any thoughts that you want to offer about what it looks like to honor Judy's legacy and memory by carrying forward the fight for disability rights and and disability justice. Um, uh, And
4: and, um, Emily, I don't know if you want to kick us off there. Sure. I'm happy to. And I'll share a quick story on the way down to get here my mom and I were in Penn Station in New York. We were just gathering ourselves before we were getting on Amtrak. And a man walks up to us and he tries to hand us $5. And he says, do you all need help? And we said, no, thank you. No, we're fine. And we just kind of looked at each other and then looked at him. And then he looks over and to the right of us is a gentleman who's using a manual wheelchair and he's black and he as possibly being unhoused. And he says, well, at least you're better off than that guy. And then my mom and I were just like, oh, no. And then we just kind of stared at him again. And he said, oh, okay, well, God bless you. God bless you. And then he walked away. And I was like, wow, what a healthy dose of racism and ableism to start our trip. And the reason that I bring this up is because it's a reminder that Judy changed the world for us. She is so much of the reason why we were even able to get ourselves to Penn Station, to Amtrak, to a train to get to D.C., right? I mean, the fight for access and the fight for our rights. But now, in turn, it's up to us to continue that fight To change hearts and minds and attitudes so that we don't continue to have encounters like that, so that we can be out and about because we are human beings like everybody else and we belong here. And we should not be subjected to ableism simply for Mm -hmm. existing. And so I think my call to action, if you will, is just to continue the work that judy and so many others started and also to recognize that now is the chance to make space for people especially disabled people of color especially lgbtqia plus disabled people right especially people of multiple religions who are also disabled Mm -hmm. to recognize that what judy started doesn't mean that Judy ended. Mm-hmm. There's so much more that we can do. and
1: mm-hmm.
4: need to do because we have not achieved the vision that
1: she was carrying mm-hmm. forward. We've just started to scratch the surface. Kim, do you want to pick up there?
5: Yeah, sure. And I think I'll come in from like the policy side, because um, you said so much in the rest of it so well, Emily. Um, I think, you know, what Judy also started is to try to change the structures we talk about infiltrating. But the thing is, we do still have so much of our systems that aren't working and need to change. And what well, I would say they are working for some, they're not working for most. Um, and so we still need to make that change and we still need to kind of carry on her legacy of like, not, not just saying, well, I guess it's done and we let it go. Um, it is As I think you both said, uh, Kings and Emily, that, you know, Judy didn't take no for an answer. She didn't even ask the question to uh, allow a no. And so I think that's sort of how we have to uh, infiltrate uh, the system and keep doing that to try to shape our policy. And as the work we're trying to do is really bring disability to everything we're doing. because so I think that's sort of where Judy took it. She took disability rights around the world. And we're just now trying to embed disability into Everything, since we know every issue is a disability issue, and now we just have to help everyone else realize that.
1: Judy often would um, issue the Clarion Call that has now become something that's popularized enough that a lot of people don't know that it mm-hmm. was something that she really pioneered, and that's the, um, the 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 notion that disability rights are civil rights. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and we often say today every issue is a disability issue, yep. but of course this this stands on the scaffolding that mm-hmm. um, that, that Judy pioneered. Um, Kings, what do you want to offer in terms of what? it looks like to carry forward Judy's legacy and memory by doing disability rights work.
3: She was an educator. She was a connector. She was a change maker. And she did it all with this unfailing ability, no matter what you did, to say, hey, I love you. You're doing really good work. And so to be able to not only have love for yourself, but love for all of the people in the community that are doing the work around you. And to be able to turn those loving moments into teachable moments, because mm-hmm. I think she did that so easily every day.
5: It's mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. beautifully said. Um, and, um, um, I I feel
1: like the right place to close this conversation because honestly, there just aren't really words that can do justice to a civil rights icon, the um, level of, of which Judy um, uh, was and has been um, uh, in, in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And I'm sure she's got other lifetimes where she's done amazing things too, knowing Judy. Um, uh, But um, Rebecca Coakley wrote in that op-ed that I mentioned before, which has so many beautiful words in it um, that quote Judy in her life, in her work, in her relationships and what she endured served as a reminder of where our community has been, but also a reminder of where we need to go. And, um, this, uh, uh this, this is not a conversation that we take lightly as we all have it. Um, Judy is, um, still very much with us and will be with the community for as long as all of us continue to do this work. Um, and none of us, I'll just repeat, would literally would be here doing this, um, this work today, if not for Judy's leadership and also, um, to your point, King's, her mentorship. Um, so thank you, Judy, for everything that you, um, just for everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> for everything, um, and, and for everything that you um, uh, did in your time on this earth individually for each of us um, and for the movement and the community. That um, that we all call home. Um, we love you, and we um, and we miss you already. Those were the voices of Kings Floyd, Emily Ladaw, and Kim Noxstead of the Century Foundation's Disability Economic Justice Team. As we close out this special off-kilter tribute to the life of Judy Heumann, we've included a whole bunch of links and show notes for listeners who want to learn more about Judy's life, her work, and how she changed the world for people with disabilities and for everyone else, too. We love you, Judy. Rest well. We miss you.